0: It's better than Goofy Golf. Come on! Well, hello, everybody. Fancy seeing you here. This is the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, episode 51, is it? I think it's 51. Here, let me look up the show notes, actually. Let's see homebrew 7854 4 itcom uh, The last one I did. Yeah, this is uh, 50, 51, Wow. And uh, today we're going to talk about Putt eighteen Miniature Golf by Peter J. Meyer and Lance Ringquist with graphics assist by Black Cats Forty. And oh my, I have the uh, I have the game running over to my left, and the screen with all the credits disappeared. So I'm going to have to wait for it to come around. But in the meantime, I hope you've been uh, okay. It's been, well, at least uh, as of the day I'm recording this, it's been 13 months since, uh, a little over 13 months since the last episode came out. Oh, here we go. 7800 conversion by Kamikaze2012. Anyway, so there are your credits. And what else can I say? A lot of things that happen when... You put out only one podcast episode every year. By the way, that should be changing, knock on wood. Knock on wood. Because there has been uh, an uptick of uh, 7800 development. Bob DiCrescenzo has a couple of games. Uh, There's uh, a brand new game that I just got called Dragon's Cache that I'll be talking about in the near future. And there's really a promising outlook on the homebrew community and by the way i should kind of define what i talk about when i say homebrew yeah i know technically some of this stuff isn't really homebrew like uh, uh, previous two episodes i talked about ricky and vicky which technically is not a home brew it's what you might call a pro brew but let me just say this if i'm talking about homebrews i mean basically games that kind of came about as grassroots for one thing here's a good okay here's a good way to put it when the no swear gamer did the atari 7800 game by game podcast he was only going to talk about the games that were actually released during the original lifespan of the atari 7800 basically things that were put out by atari and licensed out to third party companies That meant that none of the homebrews were covered. He didn't plan to cover the homebrews or anything else after that, and he retired the podcast with a wonderful final episode, I might add. That was so much fun to listen to that. I'm basically going to talk about games, for the most part games, that don't include what Phil talked about. Think about it that way. One thing I'm still pondering whether I should talk about is the monitor cartridge, because well... It's all about assembly programming, if uh, I'm not mistaken, and that you do not want me talking about that. If anybody wants to come ahead and volunteer uh, with that, go right ahead and do it. You can email me at homebrew seven eight at fabfourit In the meantime, what's been going on? Oh, the past year, it's been so crazy, and of course we still have COVID going on. I got my Moderna vaccination earlier in the year. Um, unfortunately, I lost my father not long ago. To he just suddenly died. It was totally unexpected, but I've been doing okay, at least relatively okay with that. And I got a couple of more homeroos. <laughs> I got Zookeeper for the 2600 and as I mentioned before, Dragon's Cache for the 7800 Looking forward to getting more. Uh, we have a new president. Oh, I shouldn't mention that because the last time I talked about that, somebody got mad. Well, you know what? I don't care. It's my podcast. I'll talk about what I want. The reason I'm mentioning that we have a new president is simply because there are only 50, this is only the 51st, maybe 52nd, 53rd, if you count extra episodes. I have not even done 60 episodes of this podcast, yet it started during the Obama administration, continued in the Trump administration, and here we are in the Biden administration. I didn't realize I had been kind of doing this podcast, albeit not consistently, obviously, for that long. And it seems like it'll never end because people keep getting into developing for the 7800, but there will be long breaks because, hey, when you got nothing to talk about, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? That I don't mind because, hey, now I don't have that every two weeks commitment that I used to make. So, <laughs> oh, But anyway, thank you all for listening to this podcast. I really enjoy doing it and it gives me a reason to play some games on my Atari 7800, and I'm going to stop babbling right now and get right into today's featured title, Putt 18 Miniature Golf. Now, unlike with most homebrewers I've reviewed on this podcast, uh, there wasn't any kind of progress report on Putt 18 Miniature Golf uh, as it progressed. So I reached out to both Peter Meyer, who designed the game, who programmed the game, and Lance Ringquist, who runs Video 61, who sells the game to see if they could uh, share their thoughts. I asked, how long have you been developing games in general? Uh, What can you tell me about the development process for 5200 and 7800 versions? What kind of frustrations you had? Interesting discoveries, how long it would take? Now, Peter was not very verbose. Uh, He came across as somebody who doesn't really have a lot to say, so I didn't really want to pick his brain too much. Uh, I just took his response and went with it. Now, because Putt 18 Miniature Golf was on the 5200 before it was on the 7800, and that it was ported from the Atari 8-bit computers. Peter had to say that it wasn't too difficult to port to the 5200 because it was pretty much the same chipset. He didn't really say much about the uh, 7800 version, except that he used 7800 BASIC for the most part, but he was still able to use existing assembly code because 7800 BASIC has a built-in assembler. Now, Peter suggested that I reach out to the folks at Video61, a.k.a. Lance. And here's what he told me. He said that they've been developing games for at least 10 years, possibly even longer. How long it takes to do a game? Well, it depends. For example, Secret Labyrinth for the Atari 8-bit took over a year and a half just to debug. Tempest Elite took at least that long or longer, he says. He said that the 5200 was something they'd never done, but there was one developer on the team who was a fan of the 5200 and knew how to program the joysticks. As for the 7800, Lance told me that it is a memory hog and, I quote, a tough nut to crack. He says that all three of the platforms, the 8-bit computers, the 5200, and the 7800, have their strengths and weaknesses from a developer's standpoint. Now, how Putt 18 Miniature Golf was born, well, according to Lance, he and Peter came up with the idea together. Lance says, and I quote, I sat at Culver's drinking ice-cold tea on hot days and the graphics artist drew the courses that I designed. Peter used his computer to draw his courses. I asked about a potential sequel to Putt 18, especially because it's a little bit buggy, and I'll get to that later. And he says, well, there's at least one golf game I designed, and maybe we will do a sequel to Putt 18. It certainly has sold like crazy on all three platforms. Which is uh, good to hear, of course. And uh, Lance wanted me to specifically mention that this game was a culmination of a whole team's efforts. He says, and I quote, Pete programs. He is a master. He does do some design. Three others. One is a programmer, beta tester, and has done some design. One does the artwork. When you see the splash screen, it's his. Plus all the other artwork. He creates sprites and is a fine beta tester. One other is a fine beta tester. Lance says, I do lots of design, most of it in fact. I am also a beta tester and program music, plus wearing lots of other hats. Pete and I did the course designs. Well, yeah, I think I mentioned that before. But given that I didn't have a heck of a lot to talk about in terms of the programming history, the design of Putt 18 Miniature Golf, I figured this would be a great opportunity to do a deep dive into Miniature Golf itself. Here is what I learned about the history of miniature golf. In the shadow of the skyscrapers of Toronto, the Canadians have opened a remarkable miniature golf course, which gives you all the thrills of the game, and then some. We shudder to think what the effect of taking such liberties with the royal and ancient game would have on the youngest caddy to the plus-four man. But wait until St. Andrews gets to hear about it. Here's a thought for Mr. Lansbury. Why not duplicate it in Trafalgar Square? We might then discover an English Bobby Jones. But perhaps the businessman's lunch would take all the afternoon. Miniature golf's roots go back to 1916 with James Barber of Pinehurst, North Carolina. Who is James Barber? He owned the Barber Steamship Lines of New York. He designed a tiny golf course that would include all the elements that made traditional golf enjoyable. He hired an architect named Edward Wiswell to design this course, and uh, the course would live on the grounds of Barber's big estate. Upon Wiswell's completion of the course, Barber said, This'll do. He named the 18-hole so-called Lilliputian putting course, This'll Do, spelled T-H-I-S-T-L-E and then D-U. Get it? Uh, Anyway... Thistledoo still exists, actually, on the original property, which is now the Pinehurst Golf Resort. You have to stay at one of the five hotels on site to use the course. I'll put a link to Thistledoo in the show notes at homebrew78.fab4it.com. And I recommend checking it out if for no other reason the pictures. You actually have to stay at one of the five hotels on site in order to use the course. But the pictures are interesting. It's not miniature golf as you know it, but a bunch of putting greens, really. It looks like a micro-sized golf course, really. Miniature golf would become a big fad in the 1920s when it was called midget golf or pygmy golf. It was especially popular with women thanks to the suffrage movement because it gave women the opportunity to pursue a variation on golf, an activity that was then considered unladylike. The so-called midget golf was also a hit with men because with Prohibition, well, they had to do something to replace their trips to the bar, so many men chose to occupy that new free time with midget golf. Many people welcomed the advent of miniature golf because a lot of vacant lots became courses, so those eyesores were now gone. It was theorized that mini golf was also a deterrent to crime because, well, pool hall owners blamed the rise of miniature golf on their losing business. Uh, That was both a blessing and a curse, and we'll get to that later. In 1922, Thomas McCulloch Fairbairn, a uh, English expat who owned a cotton plantation in Mexico, wanted to build a small golf course on his property. Upon much trial and error using different materials to build his course, he found that cottonseed hulls made for a good, soft-yet-sturdy surface that could withstand constant foot traffic from his laborers. So, he laid down a foundation of sand and then covered it with a blend of ground cottonseed hulls into oil. That mixture was then dyed green, and his small course was born. Thomas Fairbairn patented his surface with his partners Robert McCart and Albert S. Valdespino, and they formed Miniature Golf Courses of America Incorporated, in 1926, Drake Delanoi and John N. Ledbetter built a rooftop miniature golf course on top of a skyscraper, and it was the first outdoor course in New York City, right in the financial district. They hoped to attract brokers during their lunch breaks. Now, this Delanois person had a shady record that included siphoning fuel from a gas pump at a station that had closed for the night. He claimed to discover that Cottonseed hull made a good putting surface. Uh, now, uh, this seems a little suspicious, considering this is New York City, would one find Cottonseed Halls. Now, remember Thomas Fairburn that I just talked about a few minutes ago? Well, he and Robert McCart got wind that two guys from New York were intruding on their territory. So in 1928, they met with Delanois and Ledbetter and worked out an arrangement in which the New Yorkers would lease the cottonseed hull surface and pay royalties. Delanois and Ledbetter eventually had 150 rooftop courses in New York, and they announced plans to open courses in Italy, France, Australia, and New Zealand, but they mysteriously disappeared. But miniature golf as we know it is most likely because of the creativity and business savvy of a southern couple named Garnet and Frida Carter. Garnet Carter was one of the co-owners of the Fairyland Inn, an English-style resort on Lookout Mountain in Tennessee, well, and Georgia too, actually. And in 1926, the Carters built a miniature golf course on their property. There are conflicting stories as to why that course was built. Some say that the mini-golf course was put there so that people who were waiting their turns to use the standard 18-hole golf course on the property could pass their time. Others say that it was built for the golfer's kids to occupy themselves. Yet another claim is that Frida Garnett, who herself was a designer, built the course for her own amusement. Indeed, she did design the storybook theme at the resort. She built the miniature golf course obstacles using leftover tiles, logs, and sewer pipe from construction projects, and she added statues of elves and gnomes. Garnett Carter patented the course design under the name Tom Thumb Golf. Miniature golf courses, uh, most if not all using processed cottonseed hulls for their playing surfaces, popped up across the country using materials courtesy of Tom Thumb Golf. W.S. and A.J. Townsend, who owned the National Pipe Products Corporation of Rochester, New York, brokered a deal with the Carters to open a factory with 200 workers who would build obstacles for Tom Thumb golf courses. As part of that deal, the Townsend brothers would claim ownership to all Tom Thumb courses that opened north of the Mason-Dixon line and east of the Rockies, while the Carters would own all the other Tom Thumb golf courses. In addition, the Carters would also get $100 in royalties for every course sold by the Townsends. In the meantime, anybody who wanted to open up a Tom Thumb course could do so with a $4,500 investment, which, even in those days, was quite a bargain when you consider that the Carters had to shell out tens of thousands to have their original course built. By 1931, the Carters had made a million dollars just in royalties from the Townsend Brothers. By that time, there were between 25,000 and 50,000 miniature golf courses across the United States. Some were Tom Thumb courses, some were independent mom-and-pop courses. And on top of that, there were roughly twice as many miniature golf players as there were old-fashioned regular 18-hole golf players. Believe it or not, even when the Great Depression hit, miniature golf courses still ran successfully. In fact, as the Depression raged on, miniature golf only became more popular. When families with drastically reduced incomes learned to downsize their lives, it became apparent that they could still partake in miniature golf, which at 25 cents a pop was a very affordable activity. There's a professor, possibly former professor, uh, Carol Ann Marling at the University of Minnesota who once said that um, one of the reasons that miniature golf was so popular in the depression was that those who were affected by unemployment could escape reality for a while and miniature golf courses gave them a larger than life feeling so they could forget all their troubles. Miniature golf was such a popular activity that there was even a trade magazine specifically for many golf course proprietors, and it was called Miniature Golf Management. That magazine had not only helpful tips for course owners, but also reports on the newest and craziest course layouts and course obstacles. Not everybody appreciated Miniature Golf, including those uh, pool hall operators who blame Miniature Golf on putting them out of business. Some people who lived near miniature golf courses complained of the noise coming from groups of mini-golfers who would often play right up to sunrise and sometimes loudly using expletives upon, well, missing the cup. And there was a uh, general concern about zoning issues, crowded streets, and uh, the possibility of miniature golf courses paving the way for other roadside attractions that would disturb their otherwise quiet communities, which was going to happen regardless with or without miniature golf, as we all know. Interestingly, the movie industry wasn't exactly filled with fans of miniature golf. Those in the industry feared that it would replace movie going as a major entertainment industry, and they blamed box office receipts dropping by as much as 25% on the rise of miniature golf. Interestingly, there were some Hollywood stars who actually had their own miniature golf courses built. I think, uh, was it Jackie Coogan did, I think, and maybe Mary Pickford? I'm not sure off the top of my head. Many jurisdictions passed ordinances to fight the disturbances blamed on miniature golf. For example, in some places, courses were required to close no later than midnight. In at least one location in California, though, they found a loophole. Uh, They would simply reopen at 12.15 a.m. In some locales, there were blue laws passed that forbade miniature golf courses from opening on Sundays. Also in major cities there were rumors of mob ties with miniature golf courses of course there were with said rumors laws anti-mini golf sentiment a worsening economy and oversaturation of courses and remember there were up to 50,000 courses in the country at one point and general ennui with the activity the miniature golf fad was dying down in 1931 being as good as dead by the time summer happened So why do we have miniature golf courses now? Well, simply because there was a mini-golf renaissance in the 50s in baby boomer post-war suburbia. It wasn't quite the craze that it was in the 20s, but miniature golf was still a popular option for harmless family entertainment. Around that time, it was also kind of popular to build small miniature golf courses at home. In fact, magazines, including Popular Mechanics, would publish articles about how to build your own course. As a sign of the times, a lot of these homemade courses resembled bomb shelters. When you think about it, what better way to pass the time waiting for the fallout to clear, right? Unlike 1931, however, this time, miniature golf was here to stay. In fact, my wife and I enjoy playing miniature golf. There's a course a couple of miles away, just over the Chicago border in Lincolnwood, Illinois, and it's called Novelty Golf and Games, and they've been around forever. They have two 18-hole courses, and what's really cool is uh, you can play one for a certain price, but if you play both courses, you get a reduced price. Keeping on general topic with this podcast, there's also a video game arcade, uh, mostly new machines though, and there is a three-in-one cabinet that contains Millipede, Centipede, and Missile Command. Uh, I don't really like it though. (laughs) We've also spent quality time at the Diversity Driving Range in Lincoln Park, which has a really cool miniature golf course. And uh, there's one that opened up a couple of years ago in Millennium Park by the lakefront that we've been to. Really nice. In our travels, we played miniature golf at Tiki Town Adventure Golf at Belmont Park in San Diego, Golf Gardens on Catalina Island, Peter Pan Mini Golf in Austin, Red Putter in Door County, Wisconsin, and various courses at the Jersey Shore. By the way, The main source for my deep dive into miniature golf was a book called, uh, oh God, what was the name of it? It's got a really difficult title. Let me check. Ah, here it is. It's called Miniature Golf, and it's by John Margulies, Nina Garfinkel, and Maria Reidelbach. It's a really cool book, and it has a lot of pictures, and the front cover has a texture that simulates AstroTurf. Actually, it might be made of AstroTurf. I'll put a link in the show notes in case you'd like to order a copy, and uh, I strongly encourage you to check with your local bookstore before going to Amazon, though. So, now that we have a deep dive into miniature golf, let's talk about Putt 18 Miniature Golf on the Atari 7800. It's
1: 1930, and like mushrooms, miniature golf courses have popped up all over the nation. There's hardly a vacant lot in America that hasn't been turned into a pattern of paths for putting. These are depression times, and with plenty of time, but not enough money to put the fees of lusher links, Americans from Maine to California go goofy over miniature golf. Yes, in 1930, millions of depression-dazed Americans were mighty sad. They had to wait in line to rent a ball and putter and play miniature golf.
0: I mentioned grassroots kind of titles earlier in the episode. Well, Putt 18 Miniature Golf is very grassroots, even though it's kind of sold and distributed uh, uh, professionally. I guess, well, even that professional distribution is kind of uh, grassroots as well. Uh, you're not going to get Putt 18 Miniature Golf from Atari Age. This one is actually distributed by Video 61 and Atari Sales. Uh, the address is atarisales.com. In fact, of course, I'm going to put a link to purchase this game in the show notes. It's not distributed in your standard Atari cartridge box. The rectangular thing with the little uh, mold inside to hold it and the screen grab on the back with the uh, fancy glossy manual and everything. This is different. The box that the PUT-18 cartridge comes in, it's a very small, um, I'm going to say 5x5 five by 1 inch square cardboard box, just big enough to hold the cartridge itself, with kind of a front label and a back label, with a back label with a uh, screen capture of one of the holes in the game. It says, copyright 2018, 2020, Peter J. Meyer and Lance Ringquist. By the way, I was thinking this was a 2018 game that I've just been sitting on for a long time, but no, it's not. It's a 2020 It was released in 2020. I believe in 2018 that was uh, another version of it. This game first was developed, I think, for the Atari 8-bit computers and then ported over to the 5200. In fact, I believe a lot of the 5200 slash 8-bit games on Atari sales, uh, Video 61, I think they're going to be converting all, if not some of them. I know they're working on venture for one thing, that's gonna be interesting. But I believe that PUT-18 is on a 32 kilobyte cartridge or is it kilobit? 32K, let's just say. Just regular built-in sound, no pokey chip. And what else can I say technically about it? Uh, oh, it also comes with a printed manual, but unlike a stapled booklet, this is actually, you hear that? That's the manual. Two pages laminated, printed out in color. Uh, one of the pages has a little comic strip on it that's uh, kind of entertaining there, uh, pretty creative there. And uh, the rest is uh, there's one page with instructions and tips to play putt 18 miniature golf and how to use the menus and everything. And you flip it over, as I'm doing right now, you get a screenshot that's diagrammed out, tells you what each object is. The cartridge shell appears to be a recycled Atari cartridge, uh, probably from 1986 or later. It's likely a common 7800 title, like Karateka or something. The end label has a green background with yellow text on it that says PUT-18 Miniature Golf, and it looks like it's cut out in a rectangular strip. Uh, not one of those industrial-type stickers, but I guess something you'd get in an office supply company. And the front label looks a little bit more Atari standard in that it has the rounded corners and everything. It looks really nice. And uh, there you have it. Now, I just got to tell this little story because I ordered the game and I got the post office tracking. And I checked it one day and saw, hey, it's been delivered. So, I checked the mail. No, it was not. And I messaged Lance at Video 61. And he was really, really cool to work with. He was very patient with me. And uh, I told him that the Post office tracking showed that it delivered and I said, is there anything you can do at your end? And basically we agreed what I would do is I'd file a report with the post office and if it couldn't get resolved, he'd ship me out another copy. Well, here's what happened. I have a four digit street address. Somebody swapped the last two digits. For example, I may live at 1234 Main Street. It actually ended up going to 1243 Main Street. And whoever lived there actually put it back in the mailbox with a little note suggesting a one, two, three, four main street with several question marks on it. And then it eventually reached me <laughs> and uh, I appreciate that person's honesty. It didn't look like the person had the slightest interest in even opening the envelope or whatever. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience. And of course, I emailed Lance right away and said, got it got it we're all good so, so I personally thank Lance at video 61 for for dealing with me but anyway let's uh, let's uh, go on to the gameplay itself. When you turn on putt 18 miniature golf you have seven options of courses to play, which I think is more than what the 5200 8-bit versions have. The default one is Pete's Green Hill course. then there's Lance's Waterworld Bay Golf, Adventureland putt putt golf. Castle Putt-Putt Golf Land, Frontier Putt-Putt Golf, Putt Wizard Fun Golf, and Random Course, meaning that each hole will be from a different course, picked at random. When you actually play the game, there are two different options as to how to play the game one option is that you can play in the style of miniature golf on the atari 2600 which means you position the cursor behind the ball and that's where the ball will actually be hit the problem with that is and i think this exists in the atari 2600 miniature golf um if there's an obstacle right there it's not going to let you position the cursor where the obstacle is so you have to be a little bit creative and for that reason i use the other option which is Power Distance Ball from Pointer. Uh, The uh, 2600 option is Target at Pointer and Power Meter, but I like Power Distance Ball from Pointer. I strongly encourage you to use that option. That's the default. What you do is you place your cursor where you want your ball to end up, or at least in the direction you want your ball to travel. There's an option for moving obstacles in game, which means that uh, there are obstacles that might be moving back and forth or swinging around in a circle. You also have the option to disable them. You have an option for courses to have hills, or you can have hills disabled flat courses, and that's how it appears on the screen. There's an option for one player and an option for two players. There's a status line at the top of the screen. It'll tell you for the current player, the number of strokes for the current hole, the net strokes, that is, strokes overall so far, the current player's net par, the par of the current hole, the current net par of the course, and the hole number. Now, assuming that you're using the default target at pointer and power meter option for each hole, what you have to do is choose one of three starting points for the ball. There are three dots you can place your ball on. Move the joystick, hold the joystick in place if you're not using the center position, and you hit the fire button. Then you use the crosshair to aim anywhere on the playfield. It disappears off the screen if you move it too far up, but if you move it too far anywhere else, it simply stops at the edge of the screen. Hold down the fire button as long as you want. The longer you hold it down, the stronger your stroke, and of course it does max out. The cursor becomes a strength indicator. You can actually continue aiming the cursor while you have the button held down. And for each subsequent stroke on the hole, you just simply repeat those steps. Except, of course, choosing your starting point. Once you already tee off, you no longer have that option. When you sink the ball in the hole, you will have a comment in the status bar. The ones that I saw, by the way, there's a comment that says hole in one, which means you hit a hole in one. Eagle, which means you hit two or more under par, but uh, didn't get a hole in one. There's birdie, which means you have one under par. There's a message that says on par if you hit par. There's a message for bogey, a message for double bogey, a message for triple bogey. And from what I could ascertain, if you do worse than a triple bogey, the message will say disaster. But you have lots of different obstacles like, you know, those uh, wooden bars that sometimes hang down that swing back and forth and knock your ball away from the hole. You have that. You have spinners similar to what's in the Atari 2600 video pinball. You have sand traps, water hazards. Some holes even have multiple levels where, uh, you know know how some miniature golf courses, you have to hit the ball into a hole and then it sinks down to another platform. It has something similar to that in some of the holes, even though it's not really a 3D look. It's still pretty cool. So a lot of the things you're familiar with in miniature golf, you're going to see in Putt 18 Miniature Golf in the Atari 7800. And, well, other platforms that have this same game. Now, as for my thoughts on the game, this is a fun game to play. It really is. I loved sitting through and playing through every course. It was so cool. Uh, The graphics aren't the most impressive thing in the universe, and neither is the sound. I mean, it's Tia Sound, so it's not going to sound all that great, really. It's definitely better looking than the Atari 2600 Miniature Golf, which I'm going to tell you right now, I do not like at all. I do not like the 2600 Miniature Golf, but I highly enjoy Putt 18 Miniature Golf. The courses are fun. Uh, my favorite course was Lance's Water World Bay Golf. Uh, such a fun course, and I love the frustrations that you have because you'll find yourself seemingly never able to get out of some of the obstacles and... uh Sometimes if you wait long enough, if an obstacle is moving, it might actually bail you out. There are a few bugs in the game. Uh, For one thing, two-player mode doesn't always work properly. Uh, Case in point, I started a game of random courses. Player 1 had a hole in one, and then the hole advanced. Player 2 was identified on the top of the screen, but player 1 was actually the active player. After one stroke, the active player changed to player 2, and it was still captioned as player two, of course. Also, I don't know if this is so much of a bug, but something that I did notice was that if you choose random course, it always starts with hole number one of Pete's Green Hill course, the default course. That might be a side effect of 7800 Basic. I personally tried to learn 7800 Basic, and one thing I could not figure out was the random number generator. It was just, ah, uh, I couldn't do it. So, I don't know if this is just a bug or a side effect of the 7800 BASIC. Also, hole number two on Putt Wizard Fun Golf. On that hole, if an obstacle hits your ball while you're positioning it, the ball vibrates in place. It appears to be just a graphical glitch that resolves itself after a short time, so no big deal. As for how the game could be improved, aside from fixing those bugs of course. I would see if I could make the graphics look a little bit more 7800-like, including making the golf ball a bit more 3D. Uh, It looks a little bit two-dimensional with not a lot of depth to it. Give it a little bit more of a rolling animation, possibly even just something as simple as, say, the Atari 2600 trick shot, which does have a rolling animation. Also, there is a term for if you sink the ball three or more under par without getting a hole in one. That's Albatross. I would include that in the messages. Also for realism, I would add a penalty stroke if you hit the water. Uh, You are not penalized for hitting water hazards in this game, so maybe there should be an option to enable or disable that. Also, I did find myself sometimes getting a little bit frustrated that I was stuck on a hole for so long, so I would add an option to pick up the ball and take a 12 for the hole. I know that the old PGA Tour golf made by Electronic Arts has that option. Now, also, I would add an option to max out at six per hole, which is very typical for real-life miniature golf courses. How many of us have been at miniature golf courses, stuck behind a family that has a little kid whom they didn't bother to explain how to play the game, and he's there for... Geez, 15, 20 minutes. That's why that rule exists. Even though you don't have that problem with, say, putt 18 miniature golf on any of the Atari platforms, it would be nice to have that max out at six per hole just to uh, add that realism. Now, something that I did notice in two-player mode is that only one player's golf ball appears on the green. I would keep both players' golf balls on the green. Uh, Have them different colors. Uh, That's also for more realism. Something that's really cool is uh, if you're playing real-life miniature golf with other people and somebody's ball knocks yours in, that counts. <laughs> so you could just tee off with one stroke and not get it in, but if somebody else's ball knocks your ball in the hole, you get a hole in one. And this next improvement I would suggest—it's—I well, don't know—it's more convenience than anything else. I would allow the user to abort the game by hitting the Game Select button. Uh, right now, if you want to abort the game, you actually have to turn off the console and turn it back on. And finally, this is something that I wish more golf games would allow. Very few do. Allow the user to abort in mid-swing. Maybe you can use the second button for this. Um, Put 18 Miniature Golf does not use both buttons individually. They both function the same way. But that's what I would recommend. In fact... Anybody listening to this who designs golf video games, just allow people to abort the swing. You can do it in real life without penalty. Anyway, other than that, this is a really, really fun game. It is worth the money that I paid for it and more. I'm really happy I have it. I can't say enough good things about it in terms of how fun it is to play. Again, not the greatest graphics and sound in the world, but still, it is a very enjoyable play, and I think it's way better than the Atari 2600 Miniature Golf. So many, many kudos to Lance and Peter and the rest of the team. How about you? Well, here's what some people had to say about Put 18 Miniature Golf. The basis of this game seems to be simple geometry. All you have to do is hit the ball, So I asked for some feedback on both Atariage and Atari.io about Pot 18 Miniature Golf, and here's what the folks at Atari.io said. Starting with Degas, I'm guessing it's pronounced Elite, who says, Difficult but well-balanced. This game is a winner by all counts. I like the fact that there are seven courses, with one that has random courses picked from the previous six. It makes for a great challenge and a great buy. Kudos should go to the team who created this game. I would collect it in a nanosecond. Uh, I wonder if this has anything to do with the fact that Degas Elite used to be um, Black Cats 40, who uh, was on the development team for this game, but I, I'm not going to speculate any further. But thank you for that comment. And we have an audio feedback from Justin at Atari.io, and let's uh, listen to what he has to say.
1: I recently got my hands on a copy of PUT 18 Miniature Golf for Atari 7800 and have been playing it a lot this week. The game is developed by Video61, and PUT18 is their first outing with developing an original game for the Atari 7800. Lance, who is the owner of Video61, messaged me on Atari.io and asked if I'd be interested in checking out PUT18. People tend to know me as a 7800 guy, and Lance reached out excited to demo his new game. He sent over some YouTube links showing early gameplay of PUT18 while the game was still in development. At first I was intrigued, but not all that impressed with the game. Some of the early gameplay footage showed mini-golf courses that resembled the blocky mazes of Atari 2600's combat. At first I guess I was hoping to see a character on screen. A little man lining up his putt like on the NES. A windmill or a fake alligator there to block his shot. You see, I'm a 7800 gamer from way, way back. And I still have this thing where I want to see the 7800 prove itself and hold its own against the NES and Sega Master System. I love seeing what the 7800 can do when you really push it. When you have a good developer, put everything into the system, and push it to its limits. There was a prototype for ElectroCop shown at the 1991 Consumer Electronics Show for the Atari 7800 that looked a lot like Metroid on NES. It looked really good, but unfortunately those games never materialized, and it left me wanting to see more. I underestimated PUT-18, though. They did indeed improve a lot of the graphics between the time I had seen the gameplay on YouTube and the final release. And where the game lacks in pushing the limits of the 7800's graphical abilities, PUT-18 really delivers in fun gameplay and variety of courses. When I spoke with Lance about ordering the game, he explained they were trying to squeeze in as much as they possibly could with a 32K cartridge on the Atari 7800. PUT-18 features six different courses each with a unique 18 holes of golf. That's 108 different screens of gameplay action squeezed into a 32K cartridge on the Atari 7800. The different courses vary in complexity and challenge, and if you keep an eye out, you may even encounter the Starship Enterprise. My early concerns of some of the courses resembling combat mazes were warranted, but the final game really surprised me with nicely detailed tile walls featuring bricks and textures, and a variety of crazy sprites spinning around the screen. PUT 18 is definitely miniature golf for the video age. It delivers simple gameplay and hours of enjoyment. Replay value was surprising. I found myself picking this game up more and more often this week, playing it for fun, leaving some other tried-and-true titles and homebrews aside, even for the NES. If you're looking for a unique new game on the Atari 7800, PUT-18 may surprise you if you give it a try.
0: Thank you, Justin. That was uh, great to hear from you, and I had no idea about the Enterprise. Now you're going to make me play this thing for hours on end, and it'll be yet another 14 to 16 months before the next episode comes out because of that. (laughs) But wow, and I did not know that. I had no idea, but thank you so much for Commenting, uh, Justin, and uh, moving over to Atari Age. Uh, I heard from Gambler172, who himself has developed a couple of homebrews in the past. He says, "Putt 18 is a really good miniature golf with seven courses, 18 holes each. It has two control modes, many other options. There are moving objects, ramps, hills, and water. Oh, yeah! Something I forgot to mention: you can tell it's a ramp because it'll have like little V-shaped." icons i guess all up and down the ramp and uh depending on where that v is pointing that tells you where the ramp is angled uh uh, he says uh moving objects ramps hills and water if you like miniature golf on the 2600 putt 18 is a must-buy game oh i totally agree with that thanks walter uh yeah i don't like miniature golf on the 2600 and i think i'm in a vast minority there (laughs) but if you did like miniature golf in the 2600 yeah i absolutely agree get put 18 and Sixers fan 105 says uh, looks like Lance sells it over at video 61 Lance is a cool dude I can't speak for Peter J Meyer the programmer as I've never had any interactions with him That said, I have a general distrust of folks using their middle initial on video game labels. Uh, I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but (laughs) Uh, anyway, he says, back to the game, it looks like they also made it for the Atari 8-bit and the 5200. After watching a bit of the Atari 8-bit gameplay and video video on video sixty-one site, my opinion is that the title screen looks nice. The rest of it looks meh, with sparse sound effects and no music. Then again, it's much better than anything I could put together, oh god. I hear you on that last part. Much better. Anything I could put, I could forget it. I tried, I tried Atari 7800 basic, but no. Yeah. The thing is I was thinking about the sparse sounds. It's miniature golf. How many sounds are you really going to have? Really? Unless you want to be super realistic and put in like some rackety unoiled, squeaky sounds of the mechanisms going around. I don't know. I don't know. That is a really nice looking title screen, I have to say. especially I love the uh, detailed design of the Potter on that title screen. It looks so cool, so realistic. And um, that's all I heard in Atari Age because, well, a couple of people were commenting, uh sending some kind of personal, I don't, I don't know if I want to say attacks, but basically some comments that ended up with my feedback thread being shut down. Not cool, guys. Not cool. So, Yeah, if I want feedback about a game, all I care about is the game. I don't care what your personal feelings are, so pull back a little bit. But anyway, that is what people had to say about Putt 18 Miniature Golf.
1: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the finale of what has already been a stirring afternoon of Miniature Golf.
0: And that, my friends, was Putt 18 Miniature Golf, and I thank... Peter J. Meyer and Lance Rehnquist for their input, giving me a little bit of insight as to how they designed this and other games. In the meantime, hey, you can go to the show notes at homebrew78.fab4it.com on the web. You can email me at homebrew78 at 4 itcom By the way, fab4it is spelled F-A-B and then the number four, it.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at, you bet, homebrew78. Coming up next, gonna talk about the Dragonfly cart, and hopefully that'll be out much sooner than 13 months from now. Once again, this is Sean, and I'll talk to you again with episode 52, and in the meantime, please give these homebrew developers the support they deserve.